2: Welcome back, everybody, to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. One of our mandates here at New Books in Military History is to bring to our listeners the insights and observations of the latest authors working not only in the more obvious aspects of military history, but also in those relevant issues residing at the cultural and social peripheries of the field. Today's discussion with Beth Linker falls into this latter category. Uh, Beth is currently affiliated with the Department of History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is the author of *War's Waste: Rehabilitation in World War One America*. As Beth reveals, the story of individual rehabilitation from war-related injury was intertwined with other political concerns at multiple levels. These century-old accounts matter greatly as the First World War was that point where modern rehabilitative medicine and social policy were born, with many of the attitudes and aspects of this early response lingering to the present day. Beth's book is an insightful consideration of the conflicted responses Americans presented to the unanticipated challenges of post-war reconstruction and rehabilitation for the nation's thousands of veterans, standing in no small way as a cautionary tale as we wind down our latest conflicts. Beth, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me.
2: Let's start off. What led you to consider this topic?
0: Well, I think uh, a lot of factors fed into this. Uh, My first career was as uh, I worked as a physical therapist. So I came to history with a background in physical therapy. And still to this day, when you go to physical therapy school, a lot of, there are certain um, elements of care that are still derived from the history of veteran care, of, of physical therapists going into post war um, situations and taking care of disabled veterans. So that was one reason um, that I went into this topic. Um, so I wanted to trace what the, what, Since I was always working in rehabilitation centers, where did that history start? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And when I was first looking into this topic, um, I noticed that a lot of the histories would say that rehabilitation started um, around World War II, um, or some people would point to polio as the beginning of rehabilitative medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was finding um, through my work on the history of physical therapy actually. That rehabilitation was starting much earlier, um, and it became institutionalized during World War I. The other reason um, I went, you know, embarked on this project is I have, uh, I come from a family of military veterans, and um, I wanted to Engage in that history and not necessarily in the traditional military history, but I wanted to know what happened after war. Right. Um, so, those were two of the main reasons um, that I went into this. And I guess the last reason, which is not insignificant, is I went to graduate school um, and right at the time of 9 11
1: right
0: and um i was noticing there was a lot of discussion um around 911 and then when we went into afghanistan about what images we would see from the war and the whole history of you know um censorship was right. kind of coming up about what what are was the public american public allowed to see um about when we engage in war, and what right. are we not allowed to see? So that brought up kind of questions. I mean, we were getting, we are mounting another war, um, and so that interested me as well to to do a, a historical topic right. on war. Well,
2: that last point. I mean, that's, that last point is particularly relevant, I think, too, when we look at the response of Americans, you know, during the First World War, to these images mm-hmm. that of 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 um, even you know, you know casually wounded, or, or you know soldiers with, with minor wounds, let alone the, the grievous reconfiguration of their entire bodies,, right. like some of these massive weapons. Right. Yeah. You know, this may seem like a strange question at first, but I suspect the answer is probably more nuanced than, than we might think. You describe, or you deal with a concept of physical rehabilitation. We have our own definition of what that means. But what did that mean in the context of America during the First World War? How did your principles right. define physical rehabilitation?
0: Right. Yes. Um, I think physical rehabilitation, it might sound narrow to kind of the more contemporary ear. Um, but it was actually a very broad program that entailed quite a bit. So physical rehabilitation, as it was first conceived of and institutionalized during the First World War, encompassed everything from rear-line medical care and making sure, you know, in orthopedics, making sure that a bone was set properly, to then home front care Um to then uh, coming into um, the rehabilitation, it was in the First World War. The military hospitals weren't really prepared to do rehabilitation because it was it was the first time it was going to be offered. Right. Um, and so they had to transform these hospitals, which were usually devoted to acute and epidemic diseases, transform it, in, transform it into a rehabilitative center, and that usually included industrial makeshift industrial workshops. So like woodworking and vocational training happened as part of physical rehabilitation and these experts in physical rehabilitation were very clear about how they did not want people soldiers just to be doing exercise for its own sake they wanted them to be engaged in an exercise that would be also a vocational education
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that they would be rehabilitated and also gaining a vocational education at the same time i should also note that you know i i, I just said that physical rehabilitation started you know in the rear lines actually it started even before soldiers were sent off to the war. So we have the Selective Service Act in World War One and that's the right. first national draft. And of course it's a Selective Service. They wanted a select group of men, the fittest men possible. And the US quickly found out that you know the, the US population of men failed to meet the standards of fitness. And one of the conditions, which I've written about, it's not in the book, but I have an article on it about flat feet. This is the first time that flat feet becomes a diagnostic category that is a disability that could preclude a soldier from being drafted into the war. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so these physical rehabilitators actually had preventative programs in rehabilitation of the feet, say, because if they rejected everybody who had flat feet, they wouldn't have many men serving. Right. So they would send them into um, fitness camps in order to recover from or to, in order to fix the flat foot problem.
2: Right, right. I mean, that's interesting, too, because here we're talking then also about, you know, basic industrialization or industrial-style remediation of the body. Mm-hmm. which, again, is something that I think we're seeing take place in a different scale through the applied techniques of the Turnerists and, and others active mm-hmm. in American industry. It's really fascinating. I've seen what you know, people have written about this with reference to the intelligence quotient testing. Um, right. But very few people have looked at the actual physical dimensions of, of this kind of transformation.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that the you know, um the cultural values that it's so clearly embodied in IQ testing, right? If you give any student an IQ test to to t- t- a student an IQ test from World War 1, they won't be able to pass it <laughs> because they don't understand what any of the questions are asking because they're so rooted in American culture. Physical standards are kind of trans-historical, but they're not. They they're embedded with cultural norms as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I guess
2: there's historical norms here because, of course, there is a prior experience with pensions and with with disabled veterans going back to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. How is the Wilson administration looking at the Civil War experience and and trying to avoid making similar mistakes?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, as I embarked on this project... Um, like any good historian, you read widely and deeply, and I was reading widely and deeply in the progressive era, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and I didn't see many historians talking about Progressives who were concerned about the Civil War pensions. Most of them will talk about labor laws or cleaning up cities or, you know, cleaning up politics or cleaning up crime. But you don't really see them talking about veteran welfare in the veteran welfare state. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the U.S., uh, right before the U.S. engages in World War I, um, in 1917, um, you know, from the from the time of the Civil War until the Progressive Era, the U.S. was known as having one of the largest, singularly targeted welfare programs, and that was to Civil War veterans, namely Union Civil War veterans. Right, right. veteran um,
2: veterans really weren't considered.
0: They were not because. The Union was the victor. I mean, you know, Lincoln uh, established the general law, which is is what led to the Civil War pension system. He established that in uh, 1862, and it was a way to um, convince uh, soldiers on the Union side to sign up for military service and what this pension system did was it you know it it assured a soldier that if he got injured in the line of duty he would get monetary compensation Mm -hmm. and maybe his wife or family would get monetary compensation certainly if he died they would get monetary compensation um and these were based on actuarial tables as i'm sure you know um where, you know, a missing arm would be worth so much money, a missing leg would be right. worth so much money, and the checks would come to the Civil War veteran as long as he could prove, which was usually visually or by witnessing, uh, physician, witness, or neighbor, if he could prove that he had a disability, he would get these monthly checks. And, you know, the 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 pension system was based on this notion, as I argue in the book, that once a soldier had gone off to war and become disabled, that he had done his duty, his masculine duty as a mm-hmm. as a male citizen of this country, no more not much more was asked of him right. um, This would change um on the eve of the first world war, and the reason that it's changing is that by nineteen sixteen um, about $5 billion aggregate had been spent on the Civil War, which was more, that was a greater cost than the actual war itself. Mm-hmm. And you have people, social scientists in the United States looking at these figures. They know the war is going on in Europe, they know the devastation mm-hmm. that's happening. And they're looking at the bottom line and they're thinking, how are we going to be able to afford? To keep this pension system going right. if we enter the war, not knowing how long this war is going to last, I mean, who knew how long it was going to last? You know how many soldiers would come home to American soil and also be on this pension system. The other thing is the pension system was kind of creating um a sense of injustice around a certain group of progressive reformers. This was the generation of primarily men um, who had not fought in the Civil War,
1: uh-huh.
0: who were the sons or grandsons of the generation that fought the Civil War, and they saw that this is a time when uh, part of the the Civil War pension system was being paid for by tariffs applied to um, imports and exports and. These progressives saw this as an injustice because there was only a welfare state for veterans or union soldiers who had fought in the war, but not for all the industrial soldiers, um, working class men who were also getting injured, but there was no safety net for them. And so these progressives saw this as an injustice. So the rehabilitation was started as a way to... um, uh, cope with this injustice, you know, try to make things equalize things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was also um, a way to control costs. That's why I called my book War's Waste. They talked about, the, they talked about these progressives, talked about war's waste. Mm-hmm. And that term indicates, is supposed to, uh, you know, indicate not only the economic cost of war, but also the human cost of war. And they fought these costs to be socially engineered. If it, with enough social engineering, you could get rid of these costs or minimize the cost so that the U.S. wouldn't be feeling the first war War for 50 years to come like right. they were from the Civil War.
2: Right, right. So, I mean, what you're describing, of course, is a, a two-tiered system of resolving this, this tremendous waste or cost of the war. You know, on the one dimension, you know, the, the fears that the, the great injuries that would be sustained would affect America's economic output in the future mm-hmm. as veterans return home. But then also the sense of, you know, we don't want to create a system of entitlements mm-hmm. that would, you know, extend the 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 cost of the war for generations to come. And that's, right. that's, that's great, because that's a very nuanced point that I think a lot of, of many historians don't consider, or many casual critics of, both the war and progressivism don't consider. The idea that you know, progressives were equally concerned with prolonged expense and, and, mm-hmm. and, and budget, budgetary imbalance rather than just, as some critics would say, looking to you know, create a, a virtual welfare state. How does the, the program that's established during the First World War of rehabilitative yes. medicine translate into greater opportunity for women in the practice of of medicine and therapy,
0: right? Yes. Um, so this touches this question touches on the history of um, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists. Um, you know, the whole we, there were nurses. Nurses existed, and they had at least they they were officially recognized by the military. Not
2: not um, necessarily welcome, though. There were
1: critics.
0: not welcome. But they were, rec- and they didn't have as, you know, as, they didn't have, they weren't treated as well as a man in uniform. They didn't have um, the, you know, the same kind of insurance and so forth. Right. But they were at least recognized. Right. Um, female physicians, you know, at this time were fighting to get recognized and they couldn't. Um But there is a subset of healthcare practitioners, which today we call allied. We lump together as allied health practitioners Mm -hmm. and they gain a foothold um, during the First World War in this effort to rehabilitate soldiers. Now, this is not to say that these occupations didn't exist before. Occupational therapists existed before. Um, you see the beginnings of occupational therapy in the Hall House, um, where, you know, you have women trying to help working class people um, learn new trades, or you have... Um, some occupational therapists working in tuberculosis sanatoriums, um, in insane asylums. And there is this part of the, you know, Jackson Lears actually has a really interesting chapter on occupational therapy in No Place of Grace. It's not really pointed to or read about a lot. Um, but it's, it's kind of this, anti-modern, you know, this how how can we keep work interesting? How can it be fulfilling to people? And then there's a curative side to it as well. How can we keep somebody who has neuroses or um other debilitating diseases? How can we keep their mental acuity up? How can we keep their spirits up? You know, there's a lot of talk about cheer up at this time and we might kind of hear that, you know, we might see that as with with cynicism, right, like just a bunch of cheerleaders, but it really was a kind of, it was kind of an armchair psychology, if you will, of how to mend people, uh, put them back together again, and one really important component was to keep uh, a person occupied and relatively happily active. Um, now, so when they put this rehabilitation unit together in my book I've primarily focused on physical therapy there have been work there has been work done on occupational therapy yeah. And there hasn't really been work done on speech therapy, and I don't think enough on dietetics. There have been books on war and food, of course, right. um, but the profession of diet dietitians would also be an interesting thing to look at. Um, but you know, it's it's a really holistic kind of pursuit, as you can hear me talking about it, because we're worried of, they're worried about diet. Diet, food and nutrition um, as part of rehabilitation they're worried about how the psychology um, the psychological status of the soldier they're worried about if there might be speech defects which a lot of the speech defects came from shell shock actually Um, and then they're also concerned about physical uh rehabilitation of the body, and that's where the physical therapists primarily come in and There aren't really prior to World War one there aren't any schools of training for physical therapy as such. there are a lot of female physical educators um and these women are in what was called normal schools
1: mm-hmm. um mm-hmm
0: and that was a college education so these were college educated women who were being recruited by the US army mm. to join and become physical therapists and physicians mainly orthopedic surgeons saw these women as necessary to the rehabilitation project because they um needed somebody who could do hands-on therapy which is time consuming
1: right
0: um and and rather laborious. Now, you know, before this, women were considered, you know, let say the nursing paradigm. Um, they weren't necessarily considered full professionals or of full scientific mind. They were they were caregivers, right? right. They, were, they were supposed to care. Right. But these physical therapists were not supposed to really. Fit that model. Nor did they want to fit that model. They pushed against this Victorian notion that the right, that the proper place for a woman in healthcare and medicine was to be in a kind of caring profession, mm-hmm. um, and be have a lot of sympathy for the patient. These physical therapists were pretty hardcore, and uh, they had they made no bones about kind of eliciting pain in their male patients, and thought that this was necessary for recuperation. Um mm-hmm. and it was also necessary to keep a kind of distance between the male patient and the female physical therapist. And
2: of course that's As, the that's the classic fear that many in the military medical establishment have about female nurses or female personnel mm-hmm. to begin with, is that they become emotionally attached to their charges. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah yeah so they have to and they and there's a worry you know with there's a lot of massaging going on, so that immediately makes everybody very nervous on both sides
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you know women don't want to be misconstrued as the wrong kind of professional in the, in the in the oldest profession they don't want to <laughs> be construed as prostitutes right, and the military's equally concerned about fraternity, you know like the 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 physical therapists and these disabled soldiers. Having inappropriate relations, oh, yeah. so it is encouraged both uh, within the profession, the new profession of physical therapists, among one another, to kind of create more of a, a treatment of pain,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and outside the establishment, the the the, the men the, the 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 non-disabled medical men want these physical therapists to have the kind of have the brawny type of women. As one of my papers is titled, They Have Brains and Brawn. So they're <laughs> they're not afraid to be strong women. And when they rehabilitate these men, they they set up these um disabled you know for disabled veterans they set up these games because games was seen as a good way to rehabilitate disabled soldiers so they all have baseball games and these physical therapists i saw one early silent film of of the rehabilitation effort and these Uh physical therapists absolutely trounce the men and they don't let the men in wheelchairs these these you know one-legged men are like hobbling around and there's did very little sympathy. Going yeah, around. when you
2: describe that in the textbook, I mean, it's, it's actually yeah. rather stunning. The the image that comes across is, of course, you know, they, the 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 medical personnel. They think that they're doing a service for the the wounded, or right. or, or the the um, the injured soldiers that they're they're playing against. And I just can't imagine the response on the part of the soldiers. I mean, was anybody asking them how they felt?
0: Not really. No, no one was asking them how they felt. And, you know, that's when they turned in another chapter of my book. The only place to get at that is to go to the inspector's general's reports where they are making their complaints known. I didn't see any, though, complaining about um, the shame, almost the shaming of physical therapists, beating them. You know, and you yeah. can understand the gender dynamics of this. You know, these women are used to being told it's not appropriate for women to be in sports and athletics. It's just then becoming appropriate. And it yeah. certainly was not appropriate to be playing sports with other men. It was complete, a completely segregated activity. Right. Um, and so, this was their chance to kind of show up a group of men. Um. But, is that good for rehabilitation purposes? <laughs> probably not. Um so I think they're kind of enacting their own anger at their system and this has an effect of kind of you know, the disabled veteran always has this uncomfortable like what is his identity. Yes. And he's yeah. always, no matter the injury, somehow emasculated. Yes. Yeah. And the rehabilitation yeah. effort, while it tries to talk about how they're going to remasculinize and make the man whole again, at the same time there's all this message. There's this message of you're not fully whole, you're right. not full, you're emasculated, and in this case of a baseball game against an all-female group of physical therapists and losing very badly to them, it sends a message that you're not even as good as a woman.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, in some ways it comes across almost as a Monty Python skit or <laughs> a live skit. I mean, but it, it really happened. And it I, I happen. think an, another backdrop, another feature of the, that's in the backdrop of this or behind all this, of course, are fears of malingering. And, you know, how how these fears of soldiers um, faking it. Played in and add cre- added to the dilemma for, you know, physician, patient, and administrator.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's that is always the fear look, lurking in the background. Is there's in the military, and then it it bleeds over into the rehabilitation effort. Um, that there's always this question of is. The soldier is the disabled soldier really that disabled or is he even disabled at all mm-hmm. or is he going to um, try to bilk the system?
2: You see some of that with the Civil War experience too, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do, and that's why you need all that testimony and witness and, and the and the, and the kind of this is, as you know, the the era of. Um, photography is starting right like hand in hand with the civil war and so a lot of you, you can go and see a lot of civil war photography of disabled soldiers mm-hmm. and that was part of the witnessing the public witnessing and that's why you know an amputee is kind of as i argue in my book the poster child of disability for many reasons and one of the reasons is that it is very apparent that that person is disabled mm-hmm. Unlike shell shock, right, that was the main concern about how do we figure out if this soldier is faking it or if it's real, because there's no biomarker or no visible disability for shell shock. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So amputee soldiers seems to be fairly clear cut that that's a disability. And that fit in quite nicely with these actuarial tables and, you know, calculating how much work lost, you know, would you have if you had a missing arm or a missing leg. Right. Um, so, but yes, part of the, so the rehabilitation was, you know, um, kind of a kind of no pain, no gain kind of effort because... They figured that, um, you know, the soldier had to go over the top again. Um, they would talk about this, you know, in World War One language, you know, going over mm-hmm. the top with the trench warfare. And then this kind of, the, most of the rehabilitation li- literature would say to the disabled soldier that was targeted to disabled soldiers, you have to go over the top again. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they set, the rehabilitation people set the bar pretty high. So in order to kind of weed out those who really weren't committed enough
1: mm-hmm.
0: to fully rehabilitate and would maybe be dishonorably discharged. And if you were dishonorably discharged, you wouldn't get a disability rating or you wouldn't get, you know, full rehabilitation or, right. um, So that was, yeah, part of that effort. And there was always a constant fear, like in the inspector general reports of, you know, or or letters, you know, from soldiers back home of, of being afraid of being called yellow or cowardly or, you know, those were common terms. And a soldier had to constantly deal with that if he did not perform disability, but also perform overcoming the disability.
1: Right. He
0: had to be, so it wasn't that, it wasn't enough that he had a disability. He had to actually prove that he could overcome it and kind of be the yeah. superhero, the superman, and what we call today the wounded warriors.
1: Right. You know that they to become
0: a warrior again and and engage in sports and um, engage in hand to hand combat and and go out and box and it wasn't enough for him just to that he had gotten that injury right. as a result of the war.
2: Right. And I guess it was even more of an issue too, or there was a, a, more of a dilemma for veterans who were not injured in combat, because of yeah. course, you know, you're not, you know, in wartime, you're not just, you know, injured by, by shot and shell, but also yes. by accident.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I looked at most of the, most of the injuries were happening in rear line, um, and this was, you know, the industrialized warfare, so in munitions, war, in or in anything, um, mm-hmm. men are getting injured. Um uh, by friendly fire um you know all of that, so very few of the disabled soldiers that I'm even talking about were on the front lines actually receiving you know sustaining an injury from from direct battle, and um you know, as you probably know, and a lot of military historians know the how an injury was assessed. Um, was, you know, was it sustained? It it, it would be more honorable, obviously, if it was sustained on the front line.
1: Right.
0: Um, Or if it was sustained on the front of your body, right? I think as General Pershing said, you know, if the, the injury sustained on the front of the body, that means the soldier was facing the enemy. Right. If the injury was on the backside of the body, that means the soldier was cowardly and running away from the enemy.
2: Yeah, even in the case of, you know, being subjected to shelling, indiscriminate yes. shelling which could be going off all
0: around
1: you, never all lasts. around you. Yeah.
0: Right. I mean, it was a very crude metric that didn't quite capture what mm-hmm. what kind of war injuries people were having. Um, but there was just the the hierarchy of wasn't an honorable disability or not, and the soldiers certainly felt that. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of them who who sustained an injury before they even got over to you know european soil, say
1: mm-hmm.
0: were incredibly shamed by that did because, the did the the,
2: did the regime or did the administration contribute to that shaming the physical yes, the
0: regime yes, I think yes, I think because there was always been question by the military officials and the medical officials did this did the soldier purposely get common harm's way Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't be sent abroad, deployed. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it permeates throughout. I didn't see kind of any sympathy. Um, You know, I, I don't think that hierarchy was ever challenged. And the interesting thing is that the dynamic always is... You know, in contrast to the 19th century when manliness was often thought of as opposed to childhood or being too young or being a boy, in this period in U.S. history, it really is this manliness or masculinity is opposed to femininity. And part of that is because the vote, women are earning the right to vote, so there's this kind of masculinity crisis going on. and so whenever those soldiers who are deemed to have sustained an injury that wasn't in the masculine, the highly masculine pursuit of defending the country on the front line, their masculinity is immediately
1: questioned. Right.
0: Um, yeah. How did they
2: recover their, their lost manhood then?
0: By finding work.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there
0: really was only one option. I mean, that the... the, the not surprisingly for progressive era um, social engineering, I mean, the thinking was that the best way to solve, quote, war's waste, unquote, was to get all of these men, who were assumed to be heterosexual, of course, to get all of these men put back together again, married to a woman, get a job where they can earn capital and have children, and that this would be the way to kind of bring them back seamlessly into society. Um, there was really so there was a lot of concern about would a disabled veteran still be um, attractive to right. a member of the opposite sex. And the soldiers themselves deal with this quite a lot. So if you look at their magazines, like their hospital magazines, and a magazine that I feature called Carry On, which was, um, you know, had a lot of disabled soldiers who contributed to the magazine. Um, there's a lot of concern and kind of hand wringing on the part of disabled soldiers about if they'll be um, attractive right. to a member of the opposite sex. Um, and so part of the rehabilitation effort was to kind of re-socialize them. You know, they would have dances at these rehabilitation hospitals, um, where they would bring like carloads of women for, so at Walter Reed, they would bring carloads of people from, you know, the Washington Mm DC area in, um, to, to, uh, have dances with the soldiers or the Red Cross volunteers or, you know, all these women's auxiliary groups would come in and have dances with them. Um, um, they were supposed to, in one way to kind of perform masculinity, as I said, was to be in these industrial workshops and to be able to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would include car repair, that would include, um, uh, you know, the secretary work, which was still a predominantly male, uh, profession at occupation right. at the time. Um, You know, in farming, truck farming, uh, so all of these kind of both industrial and then agricultural work, um, that was kind of the goal. And it's interesting because in the medical setting, I don't think we would probably see this today, in the medical setting, these physicians were actually measuring recovery by employment, Hmm. Um and so they would that would be the kind of the end goal of rehabilitation and the end goal of remasculinization. Right.
1: Um
0: the subject of you know, sexual relations though, besides getting married, the subject of sexual relations was really not talked about. That's not really until World War Two that you see far more explicit discussion right. about that.
2: Right, right. Huh. You know, you talk about the amputee, you know, you, you you refer to them in the book or in our, our talk here about how the, the amputee exists. But also, in the book, you talk about how, in a, in a way, American society considers the amputee as almost this deviant figure. You know, and I found that fascinating. And, of course, the first question is, why was that? But then also, how do the veterans respond to that? To, you know, being, on the one hand, heroic you know, men who sacrificed for for the nation, but it also being seen as a result of somehow becoming this deviant person.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, yes. So there was always suspicion about amputees, and it mainly comes from the fact of street begging. Um, and at this time in uh World War One America, there are laws in certain cities, what we historians today call the ugly laws, where a person could be fined if he or she was found on the street and uh he was begging, perhaps, is often the case, so vagrancy. Mm-hmm. Um and if he purposely showed his disability as part of that act of begging. And so there was kind of a cleanup going on in the country at this time, partly fueled by eugenics, right? Mm -hmm. The notion of um, that we could kind of again another social engineering problem, that we could create a better race if we just got rid of all the defectives and all the disabled. Mm -hmm. Um, And one way of doing that is at least getting them off the streets. Um, And there is this kind of, you know, you know, throughout literature and popular culture of amputees being deceptive or being thieves or what have you. And again, mm-hmm. I think this comes from the the notion that if you have a disability, you're going to be a beggar. And, and you know, it is true that there is a correlation um, for they know it in the early 20th century and we know it now between disability and poverty. Right. Um, so, so amputees, though can be, I mean, the way the military deals with this deviancy is to essentially cover up the deviancy, um, and the way that these rehabilitators so uh, do this is that they bring the production and design and making of artificial limbs mm-hmm. into the medical center,
2: this is the David Silver connection,
0: then. Yes, yeah. right. David Silver was um, part of the, the U.S. Army's rehabilitation effort, and um, prosthetic limbs before this was a booming industry in the United States. Again, war is has historically been very good for the prosthetic business, mm-hmm. and the Civil War was very uh, good. Yeah. For U.S. prosthetics, right. and the USA was known as as one of the leading um, makers um, of kind of cutting edge prosthetics.
2: And these early prosthetics, of course, had a very short lifespan.
0: They did. Yes. They 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 broke, or they would create problems for the wearer, um, and they cost you know a lot of money. Um, so the the. The trick during World War One was how can we make a limb that's cheap um, I'm not sure I guess they were thinking of durability, but the most important thing was can we mass produce it, which right. limbs had never been mass produced before World War One Can we make them cheaply because they plan to issue them, issue them to every amputee soldier um and will they look? what was called then quote modern
1: mm-hmm.
0: which meant will they will it will it cover up the amput ante- will they look lifelike. Right. And you know, prior to this uh, a lot of Civil War veterans, you know, they could use their pension to to buy a limb, a prosthetic limb, but a lot of them chose to just wear like a peg leg, which is essentially a crutch. Right. You know, a prosthetic that just comes to the end and, and looks like the crutch that you use under your arms to walk around if you sprain an ankle mm-hmm. or break your break break your leg. Um, these prosthetics in, in, in the World War One rehabilitators really did not want to see any World War One veterans walking around in a peg leg, mm-hmm. so they created these um, the Liberty Limb. Uh, which is, was a very lifelike-looking, lower-extremity prosthetic. Uh-huh. Uh, they attempted to mass-produce it. Um, and they wanted each soldier... They, they basically said, if you don't wear this, you're going to be dishonorably discharged. Uh-huh. And then a soldier would be stripped of his rights to you know demand um, payment or further rehabilitation from them. Right. Um and then the upper extremity prosthetics um you know is similar that they would they would try to do lifelike but with upper extremity with arms you they were also concerned about what activities the software right. would be engaging in and so they would actually have um extensions or the upper arm uh, that you could plug into a certain workplace. And then probably um, the most fun extensions were like the sporting ones, so like a baseball mitt, a boxing glove, um, so that the assumption was that this man would go back and not only work, but he would also do the appropriate leisure activities as well.
1: (laughs)
2: It's amazing. I'm just picturing these exchangeable parts, these exchangeable limbs. Yes. Yeah.
0: So you would actually be plugged into your
2: workstation. <laughs> it's amazing.
0: What about other
2: debilitating injuries or conditions that are unique to this type of warfare? I mean, you know, we're talking also the first world war, talking you know, gas poisoning, gas mm-hmm. blindness, facial mm-hmm. disfigurement. Uh how are these conditions treated? by the, the, the veterans bureaus?
0: Um, you know, I didn't go into that as much. I mean, obviously, there's a huge literature on shell shock for this time right. period. Right. Um, and gas injuries, of course, are another concern. The interesting thing is that the diagnostic category did not matter quite as much. Um, it, these, This rehabilitation effort was kind of the the clearinghouse for all diagnostic categories, and it was highly interdisciplinary. So I've talked about orthopedic surgeons, but, you know, neurology is coming on the scene at this time. Psychology is also coming on the scene at this time. Mm -hmm. And other medical specialties, you know, and facial plastic surgery, as we know, uh, really uh, developed during World War One. If you yes. read like Liz Hankins' book on Venus Envy, she, she details some of the World War One efforts in plastic surgery and all the facial injuries that are happening from the shell in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the one thing that is consistent throughout this treatment is that again this that this this marriage of vocational and physical rehabilitation together and also, this sense of, they we will overcome, the disabled soldiers will overcome, and if we give them enough cheer up, and if we stay positive, <laughs> and there's a little bit of re-education, attempt to re-educate the public, which is, um, you know, quite a it's risky in a time in the height of kind of eugenics thinking to right. say to employers, you need to, a disabled veteran is just as good as an able-bodied citizen. Right. You need right. to employ this person. And so, and it didn't, and so that encompassed all kinds of disabilities. But I think, as I argue in my book, I think amputee soldiers were easier to sell that message right because you could have this very powerful kind of they looked whole again right um and as long as they didn't have any other complicating disabilities which is usually the case um it was easier to say, and or like a soldier who has tuberculosis, right, which mm-hmm. became actually quite a problem, and the, that they didn't foresee. These framers did not su- see, foresee in the 20s that a lot of the disabled veterans who are coming to the Veterans Bureau are actually have tuberculosis, right, and and soldiers are saying, I, I contracted this during the war, and so then there's all of this, you know. Effort to figure out if it did happen during war or not, or was it a result of war or not? Right. Um, also, but, the
2: fears of the extended cost of, of,
1: of treatment right. too. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So the rehabilitation. I mean, that's they. No matter the the injury, the philosophy was pretty much the same, and applied to all soldiers, regardless of their disease or disability.
2: Does that include African American soldiers and veterans?
0: Um, it does. It does. But of course, the imagined communities to which these veterans are going back is pretty, you know, uh, it's not the same for a white soldier. Right. Um, so, as I point out in my book, there was no effort for all of their talk, these World War One rehabilitators, for all their talk of making these amputee soldiers whole again and making them look like they don't have a disability. Um, You know, when you're talking about prosthetic limbs, then you have to match it to flesh tone, flesh color. Mm -hmm. And all the Liberty limbs were white. There was no attempt to make a limb that would match an African-American uh, soldier, tone. or hit the yeah. skin tone. Yeah. Even when, you know, before this, you had like wood, like ebony, like darker woods, and all of that, that, that could have been possible, or paint. But yeah. there was no attempt. There was not even any discussion of that. Now, what's interesting about this rehabilitation unit, you know, this is again the height of segregation. You know, the big migration north, mm-hmm. there's, you know, kind of anti, there's a the height of lynching. Um, and, um, what we know from U.S. history um, is that most instit- institutions were segregated. Um, the Army itself was segregated right. at this point. But rehabilitation was so new, and they didn't have any real infrastructure to speak of. It was all makeshift, that white soldiers and African American soldiers rehabilitated in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rehabilitators... One way of kind of a not an implicit segregation was to put African Americans overwhelmingly in truck gardening and agriculture, um, assuming, of course, that these men would go back to sharecropping or something right. of that nature. Right. Um, so I don't think that they were given the same kind of vocational education opportunities as, say, a white soldier would be given.
2: Interesting. Was was there any distinction made in the quality of the prosthetics, or did they all received the same?
0: It was all the same.
1: Yeah, the liberty. It was all limbs. the
0: same, right? Yeah, which broke down very quickly because they yeah. were like a. Thin, they were like I call them the IKEA of like <laughs> prosthetic because it was like compressed plywood. Yeah, and they were really poorly made. I mean, granted, this was the first time that they were going to do you know, mass produced limbs, but you know, with ready-made clothing, we know the difficulties of that with ready-made clothing that, you know, that certain side doesn't really fit us that well. And there's all kinds of variation in human form, but with a limb, which is far more intimate and the fit is so important because Mm -hmm. if you don't get a prosthetic limb to fit correctly, you're going to get skin breakdown. um, And the amputee doesn't want to wear the the prosthetic wound, because it's causing more pain and discomfort and health issues than if he just went without. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this was kind of the constant tension between those who had amputations, you know, kind of deciding that they didn't want to wear limbs, especially upper extremity, you know, amputations. A lot of times those people just adjusted to... The Life, disability, yeah. rather than trying to get it put an artificial limb on, um, and the medical professionals just kept insisting that they had to have a limb on. Mm.
1: Mm.
2: In the end, you make the case that you know, you know, kind of counterintuitively, perhaps, that America's participation and experience in the First World War, and of course, you know, the the Veterans Bureau's activities with the amputees and o- other injured veterans. Actually, undermined efforts to establish uniform health coverage. Yes. How so?
1: Well, as
0: the you know, First World War is going on, and as it, it is, well, the armistice of the November 1918. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's kind of looking around and saying, you know, there's 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 uh, what are we going to do with these soldiers? Um, there's a mass demobilization they're being treated in uh, military hospitals but yet the the legislation the war risks insurance um, which uh, was passed in 1917 which changed switched it over and the civil war pension system is still going on mm-hmm. because they're still civil war uh, veterans but they kind of reset the clock and start this war risk insurance that says promises that soldiers will be maximally rehabilitated they will receive kind of a maximalist medicine And the soldiers, come the armistice, aren't fully rehabilitated, and still some haven't seen, received any rehabilitation at all. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this conversation in Congress about what to do about this. And some progressives are hoping that this new War Risk Insurance Act, which essentially paves the way for Veterans Bureau and Veterans Administration Hospital and Healthcare, these progressive era reformers are hoping that this is the moment when the U.S. will have at least sickness insurance for all worker, working class men in America, like mm-hmm. what was happening in Europe and the UK and what had, uh, in Britain, and what had happened in Germany under Bismarck. They were hoping that there would be a sickness insurance or some kind of healthcare system that would not, that would cover veterans and industrial
1: workers. Right.
0: Um, this, this Failed, um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of you know those prog- those few progressives who were arguing for this, you know, the, the, the example was always Bismarck Germany, and we had just fought a war with Germany as our enemy, right? And no one wanted to look like they were like we were going to become, you know, follow Germany's lead. Um, so it was not too it was not very uh, was not politically uh, viable for somebody to op- to say, let's open this up for right. all uh, working class male Americans. Um, so what ended up happening was that the effort to kind of get civilian health care insurance uh, rolled into this uh, was negated. Um, And then a new system had to be developed, a non-military system of the Veterans Bureau was was established. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there on out for the entire 20th century, we have a two-tier system where, you know, veterans can receive health care and civilians will not. Um, So that's how that happens.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Well, you know, you also present
2: a coda in a way in your epilogue, you know, where you're drawing comparisons between I guess between current contemporary veteran and active duty amputees and administrators and physicians and then you know the experiences of the first world war generation. I and mean, I just wanna as as we move to a close, I just wanna ask you, you know, what what should we take away from these paired narratives with regards to rehabilitative medicine and war?
1: Um,
0: I don't want to come off as somebody who thinks, you know, rehabilitation is a bad thing or was the wrong move to make. Um, I don't think that at all. I think, you know, most war veterans want assistance and reintegrating back into civilian life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think rehabilitation, whether it be medical rehabilitation or psychological rehabilitation or whatever you want to think about it, um, that these men deserve that. Um, I think the lesson is, though, that we never... We think that rehabilitation is a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Um, we think... We tend to think, you know, that in, in in perennial... American optimism um, that somehow these veterans who have been injured and experienced maybe you know horrific events can just simply kind of come back into society after a few months of rehabilitation. It won't cost too much, it shouldn't cost us too much um and then we'll let them go, and they'll be fine, happy, you know, citizens reintegrated back into society. But mm-hmm. what we never seem to learn is that uh, a lot of disabilities from war are incredibly complicated. It is very rare that a soldier comes home with just one disability. There can be psychological disability. There can be physical disability. Mm-hmm. Um, there, and And that it's not just a one-time stop into rehabilitation and then they're put back together again and they're done. It's not like fixing, you know, other technological device. There is no technological fix. And often right. rehabilitation is not, you know, there are very few medical cures in the world of rehabilitation. It is a long-term process. And um, I don't think, you know, as a nation we've ever been really Able to honestly look at that and say, and put, say that you know this is a long-term commitment. When we go to war, there is going to be, um, there's going to be a human cost to war, right. and that human cost will last perhaps our lifetime and beyond. Um, and I think that's where, you know, this, the rehabilitation, it's, it's ironic that the Veterans Bureau and the Veterans Administration comes out of this effort to save money. Um, and it's almost as if we're still living in that paradox. It was a social welfare program born out of an effort to control war's waste, to make right. war's waste go away. And that's an impossible, you know, that is a paradox that, that you you just can't both get rid of war's waste and save American tax dollars.
2: Right. Well, as we bring it to a close, first, thank you for for joining us. Thank Um, you. uh, We have two wrap-up questions we ask everybody. Um, They're not related to the book, at least I don't think they are. Um, First, what are you reading now that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Um. I
0: am reading right now a disability history of the United States. Um, it's kind of the first synthetic uh, history of how we can look at United States history through the lens of disability, um, and it's a really it's it's by Kim Nielsen, mm-hmm. um, and so. You know, I've dealt with disability and war, but I'm more interested in in how we can reconceptualize events that are really common and well known in U.S. history. How does it look different if we take the perspective of disability and what does disability mean and how do we define it? And, you know, it really becomes, this is a category that is incredibly important to understand the rise of the welfare state in the United States. Um, It's an incredibly powerful and political and politicized category.
2: Okay. Okay. Second question. What's next on your play? What what project are you conceptualizing or working on now?
0: Um, the one project, um well, I have a piece coming out on I moved forward in time a little bit. Uh <laughs> World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, disabled soldiers, namely paraplegic veterans. So World War One oh. If you were paralyzed, you had very little chance of um, surviving past a couple months. Right. Um, the morbidity was something like mortality was something like around eighty percent for spinal wow. cord injury, and that dramatically discre- decreases by World War II to about ten percent. Um, a lot of people say point to antibiotics, which was part of the reason, but actually catheterization was a major different uh, techniques of catheterization and allowed a lot of Spinal cord injured uh, veterans to survive.
1: Um,
0: And so I look at the, I'm looking at a movie called The Men, which was produced by Fred Zinneman Mm -hmm. um, and Marlon Brando's first ever film debut. Um, I look at that uh, film and then I look at, that film was based on actual veterans and their treating physician. And so I've been able to recover. Um, the Veterans Point of View and the Veterans Magazine and then also the Physicians, what they're publishing. And I'm looking at the concept of um, the symbolism and science of impotency um, when it comes to paralyzed veterans of America in World War II America. So that's that's uh, an article that's actually coming out next year. Okay. And then my, my, my book is um, my next book is on posture called Slouch, The Rise and Fall of American <laughs> Posture.
1: <laughs> and I love, um I love the title. that that's actually
0: cool. came from the flat feet stuff. you know, posture it becomes a measure in World War One of a fitness. And I'm trying to look at how this science of posture, where does it come from, why does it come about, and what kind of norms, practices and beliefs does it lead to culturally um in America. So that's what I'm working on now.
2: That's great. That's great. Well again, Beth, thank you for joining us. Um, Thanks so
0: much for having me.
2: Sure, sure. Best of luck going forward. And finally, to all of our listeners, again, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. Thank you all for listening.